0: I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown.
1: Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. I'm Trey Yinks. As COVID-19 vaccinations roll out around the world doctors are reminding patients about the stringent process these drugs go through in order to get approved.
0: There are three different phases of studies that vaccines go through before they get to approval, and each one is slightly bigger, slightly more intense, slightly more people involved to try to really make making sure that you're doing what's best for the people receiving it.
1: This is the Fox News Rundown, Evening Edition. People in numerous countries made headlines this week as they lined up to get injected with new coronavirus vaccines. The most vulnerable populations go first, along with frontline workers. The next year will bring a multitude of issues with how the coronavirus spreads and will require the public to remain vigilant despite vaccine distribution.
0: Over the course of history, vaccines have been hugely important in controlling, you know, outbreaks, pandemics, epidemics of infectious diseases.
1: This is Dr. Katie Passaretti, an infectious disease specialist.
0: So long-standing history of, you know, huge importance. And we've seen the consequences of um, vaccine hesitancy or the um, anti-vaccine movement um, over the past couple of years as, you know, for certain um, diseases, vaccine rates have dropped. And we've seen outbreaks of these diseases that, you know, we hadn't seen for quite some time, measles, mumps. You know there are a number of them that have really kind of started picking up over the past couple of years. Um, so very clearly, you know, vaccines have a longstanding history of impact. You know, the process that vaccines go through um, to get to that time where you administer it to everyone um, essentially is multiple stages of evaluation. So. Initially, um, you know, before you even ever give it to humans, you kind of do some um, studies in the lab to see, you know, if in theory it looks like it will work, if not, you know, no toxicity, that kind of stuff. And then there are three different phases of studies that um, vaccines go through before they get to approval. And each one is slightly bigger, slightly more intense, slightly more um people involved to try to really make sure, you know, um, kind of step into making sure that you're doing what's best for the people receiving it and making the best recommendations when you get to the end of that that process. So phase one, phase two, phase three, each bigger, each more, give you more information in a broader population to make that decision.
1: I wanted to ask you about COVID specifically and, and sort of how you see the rollout going, you know, we're seeing these uh, priority groups in terms of the elderly and medical workers, frontline workers. Once these groups are out of the way, how do medical professionals make the evaluation about who gets them next? Because there are millions of people that do want a COVID-19 vaccine and are looking forward to that time.
0: Yeah, so that's, you know, that's a really good question. And, you know, it's challenging to make decisions about when you don't have, you know, we do not have the luxury of having infinite supply of vaccine initially. I think all indications are that the supply of vaccine will ramp up quickly and that we will be able to expand the groups vaccinated, um, you know, faster than we had initially thought. Um, But with that, you do have to kind of tier out recommendations. So from an infectious disease standpoint, you know, it makes sense to focus on the populations where you can have the biggest impact. So, you know, those where we see lots of transmission and those, you know, we've seen with COVID that um, individuals with multiple medical problems, Um, certain kind of risk factors are at most risk for getting hospitalized, um, passing away from COVID. So, you know, focusing on those groups where you can have the biggest societal impact and individual impact as you get more and more supply and tear out to, you know, people that are young, healthy, um, and may not be at risk for spreading to huge groups of
1: people. We've been talking to doctors throughout the year during this pandemic and there's been a common theme of people saying they've just never seen anything like this before you've worked on other outbreaks like ebola how does this compare and what are some of the different challenges that doctors nurses and medical professionals across the board face when it comes to fighting covid 19.
0: yeah so you know those In my lifetime, the last kind of, excuse me, significant pandemic was in 1918. I was not around at that time. You know, the highly infectious diseases that we've dealt with since then kind of um, definitely raised the concern that what we're dealing with now could happen. But luckily, they were controlled before they got to that point. So due to nature of the, the virus themselves and how containment measures were put into place, you know, we were able to contain it before it spread worldwide you know, the biggest issue here isn't with COVID is not necessarily the severity of disease, it's the volume of people that are susceptible, infected, and the challenges with controlling spread. So that, you know, concept you keep hearing people talk about of people even prior to onset of symptoms can spread. So it's hard to, you know, really control things like that. And symptoms can be mild. So people, you know, continue to work, continue to go out, they're not kind of home processed you know, just lying in bed because they feel so poorly. It's, you know, in some people, mild symptoms. And that's actually bad for spread of infectious diseases
1: because it means you're interacting with more people.
0: Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask you about how individuals respond to this virus. I think it's Mm -hmm. interesting that so many people have mild cases of coronavirus and in many cases don't even know they have it at all we know the pre-existing conditions list, and we we know age can be a factor in how (laughs) susceptible someone is to COVID-19. But do doctors know when it comes to an average 30-year-old, for example, what sort of things would make them a a, a major risk factor in in terms of being susceptible to COVID-19? And are these things that people are aware they have pre-existing conditions that are there or the things that someone could have and, and they just don't have any idea about it until they get sick and you realize, okay, internally something's going on with this patient and this is probably why they're responding so poorly to actually getting the infection.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think just to draw a little bit of a distinction between susceptible to infection versus having more severe COVID. So I think you're asking about, like, who is predisposed or how do we know if someone, especially if maybe it doesn't have that obvious risk factor of age over 65, 75, and whatnot. Um, You know, in younger, healthier people, I think we still have not completely figured out why, and it's a very small chunk of younger, healthier people who have more severe illness, but it is present. You know, we know that things like, obesity and um, plays into that. And certainly if they have those other medical conditions, diabetes, heart disease at young ages, you know, that still impacts their body's ability to respond to COVID. Um, But, you know, in someone, you know, we have rarely seen cases of young people otherwise healthy that have more severe disease. And why that individual has um, such, uh, that course in particular is likely related you know, much of the morbidity from COVID is about to be related to your own immune system kind of flaring up, over-responding, and contributing to that illness more so than the the virus, viral direct damage itself. Um, But there's no way to predict that looking at a patient.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Katie Passaretti, an infectious disease specialist. We'll be right back. I think that's one of the things about this disease that makes many really afraid and they do want to follow the guidelines and stay indoors and socially distance and wear a mask when they go out. But I think there is this conversation happening now of, okay, vaccines are starting to be rolled out. Treatments are getting a little bit better just in terms of the experience that doctors have in treating this virus. And especially young people say we want to get on with our lives. Business owners say we want to open up businesses and get back to work. What sort of cautionary message would you give to people amid the vaccine rollout when it comes to the fact that this isn't over and this battle isn't finished?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly you'd have to be hiding under a rock a little bit right now to know that we're still in a very, very dangerous position, right, where cases that are a higher level than we've ever had them, hospitalizations are incredibly high from areas of the country are having challenges being able to take care of patients. And in my mind, you know, that's the thing that's most important. If our healthcare care systems are having challenges being able to provide care, not just for COVID, but also non-COVID patients. That means we as a society need to protect each other and put those protective measures in place. And that means, you know, even though me as an individual is low risk and I want to get on with my life, what's the greater good? What should we do to protect the most people and, you know very clearly right now that is still stay at home, wear your mask and avoid those group gatherings, you know, and it's not about you. It's really about, um, you know, the people you interact with and the people they interact with. And it just rings out very quickly.
1: And I guess my last question has to do with what doctors can take away from this pandemic. There's a lot of angles we cover in the media about how, people aren't going to the doctor for things like cancer or heart disease, traditional medical conditions that people would see a doctor for. But there is one side of this that is positive, and that is the experience and the lessons that doctors across the board, not just infectious disease doctors, can take away from this outbreak. From your perspective, what are some of the positives in the medical community that COVID-19 brings to the table.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've proved how quickly um, scientists, science can move when there's an impetus to do so. So, you know, the fact that we sequence the virus within days of, you know, it being an issue, the, the, speed of progress as it relates to vaccines, the um, communication and collaboration across the medical community, across disciplines, as you said, those are all hugely important. And I think, you know, the other big thing is, you know, we get warning, this has happened time and time throughout history, pandemics, and, you know, I think it highlights the importance of preparedness moving forward. So we will get through this. We need to take the lessons learned during this um, forward as far as, you know, we have definitely learned along the way. Tremendous amounts about the virus, tremendous amounts about the importance of consistent messaging um Good education, you know, what an impact that can have, not just within healthcare, but in, you know, communities in general. So I, you know, certainly never would have wished for a pandemic, but I do think there's hope and I do think there are, you know, things that we've learned that um, will be hugely impactful for years to come.
1: I really appreciate your perspective on this. I know our listeners do as well. It's great to hear from someone who understands the ins and outs of infectious disease and what it means for our country and the world. Dr. Katie Passaretti, an infectious disease specialist. Dr. Passaretti, thank you again for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to
0: date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.